Are You Just Watching is supported by our dearly loved listeners. Special thanks to Tim Martin, Craig Hardy, and Richard French for their monthly support. To help support Are You Just Watching, please go to patreon.com slash are you just watching. Are you just watching episode 59, The Martian, part one? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Merton. We apologize so much to our listeners for the delay in getting this episode out because it's just been a real crazy month and a half. It, that it has. That it has. <laughs> Life is happening at uh, an unusual pace. Yes. Yes, and it'll probably only get worse with summer coming, but it's it's just one of those things that um, a month ago I found out my grandmother's health had taken a turn for the worse, and I had to make an emergency trip to Georgia, and I believe you had a trip as well, Tim, plus you're working extra long hours. Yeah, well, it's extra long hours that my project at work is coming to an end, but I did get the uh, the opportunity. My wife and I got to visit my grandson. Oh, and you know his mother, our daughter, and mm. son-in-law out in <laughs> Omaha. Oh, and, uh, that was a wonderful trip. How fun! So yeah. anyway, that's that's our our excuses. <laughs> well, we've watched this movie. Well, I took my notes over a month ago. I think you've been in it a little more recently than I have. Yeah. And but we have both read the book, so this would be kind of an interesting, a different twist on discussing a movie because usually maybe if one of us has read the book, the other one hasn't. But we've both read the book and we've both seen the movie, so it's going to make for an interesting discussion. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, th- this is a good one to do it with, given how close the mm-hmm. uh, the book and the movie turned out to be. Right. Yes, you could almost, parts of it, you could almost follow word for word from the book, which is really nice. Though They did change the dialogues slightly with names and that kind of thing. But for the most part, it seems to have stuck fairly close to the book. They left a lot of the book out of the movie, and I sense that was mainly for time. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing already, like an eight-hour movie. <laughs> yeah, it already was a pretty long movie, and I can't imagine. It was over two hours. Uh, I can't imagine if they actually put the entire trip from Aries 3 to Aries 4 site. Um, that would have been cool. – I mean, that was like a third of the book, I think. I, I have to admit, I was looking forward to seeing the uh, the whole crater incident. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, they had to leave it out because they could. They could. Yeah. Yep. It, was, it didn't it was... really feed to the plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the, the dust storm uh, – you know, causing him to have to change his directions mm-hmm. um, and and that whole back and forth thing time that he lost. And there were a lot of really interesting things that happened in that trip from Aries 3 to Aries 4. Unfortunately, they were all glossed over in the movie. <laughs> yeah, it, he jumped like 150 days in... in uh... During one song montage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, obviously, since we've both read the book and both seen the movie, I think it's kind of goes without saying that we both enjoyed um, both the book and the movie. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, um, 
I had heard from several friends when the movie came out initially that uh, the book was better and that the book was excellent. And so when I realized that we were going to do The Martian and that I wanted to get my hands on the movie, I actually saw the book first and saw, I checked it out of the library and read it in one sitting. I could not put the crazy thing down. (laughs) (laughs) So went an entire Saturday. (laughs) But it was a very good book, I have to admit. Yeah, it's. I actually, uh, uh, as I've mentioned before, I do a lot of commuting mm-hmm. for my job, right? And I actually listened to the audio book, which was also very well done, very well performed, mm-hmm. and uh, listened. I I actually finished it on a trip up to D.C. to visit with family. Mm. It really grabbed my attention, so I then bought the Kindle version and read it for myself. Of course, I still heard it in the narrator's voice. Right. (laughs) But, you know, what are you going to (laughs) do? Right. Now, obviously, I'm hoping that people who are tuning in to listen to this have already seen the movie or read the book, so we're not going to spoil anything for you because there are two things that are very different in the book and movie, but they both happen at the very end of the movie. But I want to discuss them now before we actually get into our discussion because they really have nothing to do with our discussion about the movie. They're just things that irritated me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, see, I wasn't wasn't bothered by these differences. Well, basically his rescue, there were two things that happened in the movie that did not happen in the book. And they bothered me for different reasons. Number one thing that happened was the commander of the mission um, superseded her uh, specialist to go grab Watney on in an EVA. And uh, unfortunately, in a real command situation, the commander is the absolute last person who would ever do something like that because you trust your specialist, number one. That wasn't her specialty. And number two, she's putting the entire mission at risk because she's putting herself at risk. And I it just that bugged me. I mean, it wasn't done that way in the book. I The only reason I can think of that they did it in that movie was because they wanted the commander to have more screen time. I don't know. Mm. I think I personally, I think it had to do with uh, trying to build the personal tension because they were trying harder in the movie to give her the sense that uh, she felt responsible for leaving Watney behind. Mm-hmm. And, it, and um, she wasn't going to lose another, another crew member. I understand. Yeah. I understand that development they were trying to make, but I guess she put, both of them more at risk by doing an EVA instead of trusting her specialist to do the EVA because a crazy talk just because it's his job. Yeah. I mean that, that was his specialty. He should have been the one to do it. And by doing taking it out of the hands of the specialist and doing it herself, she actually put more risk on not getting Watney. The other thing that bugged me at the end was um, the fact that uh, in the, in the book, Watney had made the suggestion that he could, poke a hole in his suit glove and become Iron Man and rocket his way across to them. Um, and that was the idea. I mean, his they all laughed it off as, as just a joke, but the captain used that as the idea for how they could slow the ship down. And those are all technicalities in the plot, which if you've seen the movie or read the book, you understand. Mm-hmm. But in the movie, they actually had him do it. And yep. I thought, I'm like, Okay, I know why you did this, but I would have much rather you spent the time on him driving across from Aries 3 to Aries 4 instead of cutting out Ah. all of that useful stuff. Oh, come on. What does the viewer (laughs) want to see? And adding adding unnecessary stuff to the rescue. (laughs) 
Uh, you know, it, frankly, I think that I prefer they did it the way they did in the movie because they it really did show the difficulty in trying to do that. Right. Because that's always bugged me. And, and you know, in, in the Marvel Universe, I'm sure that the computer controls thrust and direction and all that. But it, when you're in a zero-gravity environment like that, mm-hmm. it's got to be hard to control when you have thrust at the end of your arm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm glad. I'm sort of glad they did that because it, it was sort of like a... You know, see, it's not as easy as it looks. Well, I thought it was completely unrealistic the way they did it anyway. So you're going, you, well, that's kind you of You think cool. he went too fast? No, I just don't think it would have worked. I don't think what he did would have worked. But, you know, maybe I think he would have gone shooting off in a direction and never connected with her. I mean, the fact that he even. Oh, yeah. I mean, it. It to me, it was it just added another level of unrealisticness to the movie that was unnecessary. It wasn't even in the book. They were just making stuff up at this point. So it's all good movie. <laughs> well, I'm not saying I didn't like the movie. That was that just. I think if I hadn't read the book first, I probably would never have even second guessed that part. Yeah, but because yeah. I had read the book, I was like, that was a joke. He wasn't going to actually do it. Come on, guys. <laughs> Well, um, so that was just, you know, a few things. Obviously, in the movie, one of the things that they added was they, they did more closure at the end in the book. Yeah. He got on the ship and that was it. Um, he, he got safely aboard Hermes and that was the end of the story. Yeah. I'm actually I'm actually a fan of the original ending. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind the movie ending so much, but um, I it, when it comes to storytelling, I like I like avoiding the big closure like Hollywood seems to do. Uh, and just leaving it for the audience to decide how it closed on their own. Yeah. Well, you know, the the interesting thing about books is they typically don't do the big closures like that because the author's always thinking, well, I could do a sequel. <laughs> and, and and I think in the movie they were like, This is this can't end this abruptly. We have to leave we have to leave our audience with something a little more than he made it safely to Hermes, you know. And it was kind of nice to see the closure, like the two other, the two astronauts who got together and ended up having a baby, and yeah. and the fact that the that the Chinese did get an astronaut on the Hermes Five mission, and you know all the little the little details that they wrapped up that were left hanging in the book. Mm-hmm. It was nice to see. I have to admit, it didn't bug me. And it's not like there really was a way to take a sequel for movie here. You know, <laughs> Watney goes back to Mars, <laughs> and they leave him again. And they leave him again. Yeah. Yeah. This time he has to grow cool. <laughs> well, uh, you next. What what did you like about the movie? Oh, well, um, it, there were a lot of uh, homages, a lot of references to real things mm-hmm. that actually happened. Uh, a lot of, you know, tip of the hat uh, to actual NASA events. And- well, I think that was necessary because they were trying to make it feel real. I mean, if yeah, you didn't, exactly. if you didn't te- tip your hat to actual things in NASA's history, it wouldn't feel like a real story. <laughs> well, there there was one where the blow up of the first resupply mission, where um, flight control says lock the doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out that was a uh, reference to the Columbia disaster, mm-hmm. and uh, the discussion around that at the time was that. It was a way for everyone on the floor to know that they had to sit down and document 
every exact thing they could remember right then and there. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, it it really I, – I liked how they put in that – a little bit of of um, but isn't that standard practice? Non- it isn't just a homo- It's not just a homage. That isn't that just standard practice? Yeah, you know, I thought it. I thought it made sense that it would be standard practice, but I couldn't find anything that suggested it was. Hmm. Okay. Uh, all the only reference that I found was that uh, the audio recording of the Columbia hmm. disaster. So uh, it, it, you know, if there's anybody out there who works for NASA <laughs> or has uh, personal experience, please feel free to correct me. <laughs> yeah. You can join us in our comments on uh, on Facebook mm-hmm. or on the show notes, which will be at ourjustwatching yeah. dot com slash fifty nine. And uh, it's it, the next thing about this movie was uh, I thought putting the book aside for a moment because the book was the same way, mm-hmm. but in particular i think the movie did a great job portraying the people as real complex people Mm -hmm. uh like um the director of nasa in particular you really felt like he had a story Mm -hmm. you just didn't get to see it but he had a story about coming up through the ranks at nasa and when he made the politic decisions uh he had a full set of logic and reasoning behind his eyes when he delivered those lines. This was uh, uh, Jeff Bridges. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think that was pretty much equal across the entire cast. They really, they all portrayed uh, like the characters were complete. And you don't see that in a lot of movies nowadays. Mm -mm. They, uh, it they're, seems su- like... they're supporting actors rather than than the main exactly. actors, and so they don't matter as much. But I, you know, I think that that is what maybe people don't understand when they see the Martian build is they think it's all about Matt Damon surviving on on Mars, you know. But it's not. It, there's this is a whole cast of characters, and it may st- and and it may start out making you think that that's all it's about, but then you end up with those really long air parts where you're back on Earth and you get to see interaction and, and real people yeah. dealing with tragedy. So yeah, and it it, it provides such a, a new dimension to the entire story, mm-hmm. both in the book and the movie, right? Uh, that it really makes a humongous difference. Um, I think if the if the book had just been about Watney on on Mars and, you know, just communicated everything that happened on Earth uh, through Watney's perception of the communications and everything. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't. I don't think it would have been anywhere near as good. No, it wouldn't have. Yeah, you really yeah. needed to know. And I love the transitions. They they preserved some of them from book to movie, like the, the one where they they first talking about um, that they've noticed that he's alive. And one of them says, well, I wonder... Uh, what he's thinking right now, and so they then switch to <laughs> to him on Mars, and yeah, and you get to see what his thoughts right at that moment are, which are totally unrelated. <laughs> well, do you remember what his thought was? I remember it was completely well. It was it was crazy, uh, completely off the wall. They, they were actually different. The one in the movie was different from the book. I looked them both up, and uh, one of them was about disco. The one in the movie was about disco music. And I, I can't remember off the top of my head now what the one in the book was, but it was something different. And so, yeah, it was just like just completely off to the wall, off topic, has nothing to do with surviving on Mars. He was just thinking something totally bizarre. It was a great transition. And it just 
<laughs> I thought that was, I mean, it was just, that's classic of the whole way the whole yeah. thing was put together. And I'm glad that they, they kept the humor because if, if what makes his character so wonderful is that he's able to look at his very harsh circumstances with a touch of humor. And if he didn't, then the whole movie would have failed. The whole book would have failed. So it was, I don't know. That was one of the things I liked. Yeah. And, you know, that that actually speaks to, uh, in the way they did the movie, um, a lot of it was just the way I pictured it happening mm-hmm. from the book. And I think that's pretty rare, too. Uh, like the, the Harry Potter books in particular, you know, a lot of the stuff happens. Of course, you know, that's very fantastical. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the stuff that happens in there when it when I saw it in the theaters, I was like, ah, no. I think no, they, that's not the way it was. I think they fleshed it out a lot better because the way I was picturing what the Hab looked like, and when I was reading the book, it it looked so much better in the movie. And I think that um, that way the way they portrayed it in the movie is maybe not exactly the way it's described in the book, but I think it works better. And so there there are parts that I think that were fleshed out because you could visually see them and you were just going by a very – just a very loose description when you were reading the book. So yeah. it was nice to have things fleshed out. Now, yeah. before we get too far into discussing things, one thing I do want to mention fairly early on and we're already – several minutes into this discussion. <laughs> I do want to mention the language because I noticed it when I was reading the book that uh, Watney is not very good at holding his tongue when he's, <laughs> he, he uses a lot of bad language and it was very evident to me because I don't read a lot of books that have bad language in them. And when you're reading it is different than when, when you're um, watching it on TV for some reason, I I tend to just not n- hear it as much as when my eyes mm-hmm. go over it when I'm reading it. And um, it was funny because I was talking to somebody a, 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 at work about this movie and he had, I asked him if he'd seen it and he was like, oh no, it's ra- I don't watch rated R movies. And I'm like, it's rated R? And I had to go back and look because I was like, well, maybe it is. It had nudity in it and it had bad language. Maybe it was rated R. It was PG-13, but it, wasn't it? Yeah. And I had to go look it up because I wasn't sure. I was like, did I watch a rated R movie? Yes, <laughs> it is PG-13. And I think that they did a very – they were actually extremely creative in keeping their PG-13 rating because of the language. And yeah. um, one of the things – I was trying to find exactly what it is that – that crosses the line language wise between PG 13 and rated R. And it seems like it's the amount, the, how many times certain words are mentioned. So like there's a threshold, you can mention it. A phys- you, you think it's a physical count? I don't know that it's a physical count, but there's a threshold there. And hmm. that's what I, the best I could find online. I was, I was doing some research into it and it appears that it's a threshold. So if they say the F word um, more than three or four times in the movie, then it, hind- it, you know, with the long other considerations and, you know, going into it, it may move it over to rated R. And yeah. so this movie, that seemed to be his favorite word. And <laughs> they got around it in several places. One, they had the technician on Earth reading his comment back instead of showing it. And, yep. and he said F word, F word, F word in the Jaren form. <laughs> Instead of actually saying them. And then there was another scene where you saw him saying it, but there was no audio. They they moved outside the rover so that you could see him through the window, but you couldn't hear him. 
And so if you were paying attention, you know he was swearing, but you didn't actually hear the words. So there was a creative working around some of the language in the movie. I thought that was pretty interesting. But be warned, if you're sensitive to language, he does take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, He uses the F word a lot. He uses the S word a lot. Um, It's not clean language wise. And that's true of the book as well as the movie. The F word shows up, um, oh, twice in the first three sentences. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, I guess if you find yourself marooned on a planet, it's going to take four years for anybody to get back to you. Um, yeah, I would I would find it a challenge to not be dropping the F-bomb here or there, I think. Uh, yeah. If anybody has an excuse, <laughs> it would probably be Mark Watney. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I wanted to comment on the uh, the nudity um, in the film. It's it's very brief. Very brief. In fact, I m- I missed it yep. the first time I watched the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, it, it what it is is it is a back scene of uh, Mark Watney walking through the habitat completely naked, um, and it it serves a very specific purpose. First, it's got no sexual content to it at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, second, the whole purpose is to show how emaciated he had become subsisting off a uh, extremely tightly rationed. It was like a less than uh, a third of a ration a day, yeah. uh, every two days or something. It was like crazy. But, you know, you, now I, you s- I did I did look it up and they they did that uh, that weight loss with the computer. Okay, because I didn't really notice him being that thin. That's funny that you said he looked emaciated. I didn't really notice that. Really? No, no, I didn't. I just thought he looked like like he was in shape. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but, I was noticing how thin he was. Yeah. So that's that's interesting that you caught on to that. I just was like, oh, it's the backside of a naked man, and he's thin. <laughs> you know, I didn't yeah. really pay attention to the fact that he was emaciated i mean i didn't see any bones showing or anything um but you're right i mean that they probably had that in there for that kind of effect i don't know of any other reason why they would throw that in um personally i thought it was unnecessary but he is in a pretty much in a spacesuit through the rest of the movie so yeah Uh, Uh, well you know he's all alone up there it's not like he wouldn't be uh Walking, walking around, around uh, from the shower to his bunk or whatever. Right. You wouldn't have any reason not to. You're right. But yeah, I think I think it was specifically to show the effect of uh, the isolation and the rationing on his body. Mm-hmm. So those were really the only bad things in the movie. Um, most of it was, I mean, from from a standpoint of sexual content, there was none. Um, there wasn't any um, violence other than just the natural you know, violence of him being left behind and getting, well, getting struck by the array and being left behind. And yeah. there was blood. Um, if if you're sensitive to seeing somebody uh, stitch themselves up after being impaled by an antenna, um, there is that. So, you know, there are a few little things in there. And, and if you really want to know in depth all of the bad stuff that's in the movie, do check out PluggedIn.com because they, mm-hmm. they, they actually detail uh, drug use, alcohol use, <laughs> all kinds of yep. things in there. They um, always do a, uh, an excellent job yeah, with that. Yeah, they do an excellent job. They actually count the bad words, which I don't know that I could ever actually watch a movie and count the bad words. <laughs> One of the things that really impressed me about this movie was that you really felt like you were on Mars. And oh, yeah. the the cinematography and 
and the I imagine they did quite a bit of computer animation in order to make it work to look like Mars. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously they filmed in a real place, which was Wadi Rum in Jordan. Yep. But they have to still make it look red. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mean Wadi, Wadi Jordan isn't all that color? I kind of doubt it. I could be <sighs> wrong, but I kind of doubt it. I guess I'll cancel my tickets. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it really felt like Mars. I think they did a the it, it beginning scene of the movie where you'd kind of dive down into the atmosphere of Mars and get close to them. That was just very well done. I yeah really really like the cinematography as a movie. Um, the the way they integrated that with the uh, with the CG mm-hmm. to make like the dust devils and everything really was seamless. Mm-hmm. Right. And it. I don't know who chose the. Uh, the location, but uh, wow, did it! It really made you feel like you were looking at Mars. <laughs> yeah. Now, a little bit later, we'll talk about the science, and there's something we have to bring up about that. But the cinematography was great, especially even when he was doing the trip from um, between the two Aries sites. Um, they did, a, you know, just some really long shots to show him traveling across. And it, like mm-hmm. I said before, it was really quickly done, but it was very well done. Um, the other thing that is pretty interesting about this movie is the soundtrack. <laughs> the score is done by Harry Gregson Williams, and it's a beautiful score. You hear it off and on throughout the movie uh, it, where, where it's needed to provide depth. And it's actually a pretty quiet score. There's very few um, rousing pieces to it. We'll listen to a little bit of it right here. That's about as as rousing as it gets because I think a lot of the the upbeat uh, is provided by something else. Uh, something else <laughs> is a good way to put it. <laughs> something from another era. <laughs> An era many of us would like to forget. Yeah. So it, disco was the music of choice of Commander Lewis. Yep. And it was the only music that poor Mark could get his hands on. So. And that was that was uh, consistent with the book too, if I remember correctly. Mm, yes, yes, he complained all through the book about the disco, <laughs> and uh, it, it's it's. Uh, I love the way they threaded it through. They made it almost part of the plot, and <laughs> it really was part of the plot. Oh, and, and the way they did it in the movie with uh, it, matching the disco songs to the uh, to the situations was mm-hmm. really. <laughs> masterfully done Mm -hmm. yes and even all the way down to the credits where they play i will survive (laughs) which is probably the best known disco song ever what was the (laughs) what was the least there's a scene where he says the least disco yeah this is the least disco song she owned was it oh hot stuff right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah he was bringing in he was bringing in the radioactive heater (laughs) and uh 
And yeah, it, it's, it, he always tied the music into whatever he was doing. It was really good. <laughs> we won't play any for the disco music for you, but I hope you enjoyed <laughs> what little bit we played oh. of the score. Okay, put the oh. ball away, guys. <laughs> I had the ball already, and we had lasers and everything. Oh, great. Uh uh-huh. And you were going to dance, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Dance break. <laughs> Now, one of the one of the comments that you had made in in our outline here was that you you had talked about this classic man versus nature story, yeah. and I thought that was an interesting observation based on the fact that I had actually asked somebody uh, recently if they'd seen The Martian, and they were like, "Oh, I've seen that movie a hundred times, and all the various you know versions mm. of man being stranded by himself, yep. and and it's like, well, yeah, I guess if you've seen one, you've seen them all, but." There's got to be a twist on it that makes it worth watching. Exactly. Yeah. But that 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 is true that that's what this movie is. That is the plot. Yeah. And, and you know, uh it's sure this story has been done hundreds of times. I mean, it you think of uh Robinson Crusoe, you think of <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, any number of uh The Castaway? Yeah. Uh uh White Fang. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but you, if you're watching it just for the main plot line, then you might as well stop with the with the trailer because mm-hmm. you know what's going to happen. Uh, right. The only thing you don't know going into the trailer is whether or not he dies at the end. Right. Whether he gets successfully rescued yeah. or not. Right. But um, this – The Martian, both the book and the movie, I thought was a uh, – textbook and very well done example of man versus nature and the way that they showed Mark Watney dealing with it and the way Matt Damon portrayed Mark Watney, I think were both spot on. And mm-hmm. uh, as far as it's I'm concerned, definitely worth seeing. Yeah, this, this, <laughs> this could be a textbook uh, example. Uh, you know, a college class could be going through the uh the different examples of of man versus man man versus himself they get to this one and and uh it, the martian could be their textbook example mm-hmm. uh even though it's not actually it's not earth nature it's mars nature well it's it's re- not even mars nature it's him against the uh, elements that you can't live in yeah without i mean because at the very beginning of the movie he goes into he lists it all it's like if this fails i suffocate if this fails I, and and, that, and if even all that stuff works i'm gonna starve to death so it's just all of these situations that i mean he's he's in a place where he's not it's not designed for life and he has to live there it is a truly hostile environment <laughs> right exactly now they I thought it was interesting. I watched, I don't know whether you took the time to watch it or not, but they did one of those science versus cinema shows on the Martian and they detailed what was good and bad about the science uh, Mm -hmm. that they portray. And when we, when we talked about interstellar, I think I spent a lot of time talking about the things that I didn't think were good science. Yeah. But to me, this movie felt very seamless other than him playing rocket man there at the end. (laughs) There wasn't really anything in it that really stood out to me as being, um, not good. But one of the things they pointed out in the Science versus Cinema episode was that this, the whole premise of him getting, of them abandoning the mission and leaving him behind wouldn't work because Mars' atmosphere is too thin to generate all those, that wind. 
and uh, and so it couldn't have knocked the Mav over because there isn't any atmospheric pressures that create wind of that. Really great. Yeah. And I thought that was very interesting that, that, that the whole premise of the movie was the only major scientific a- inaccuracy <laughs> when you go through the whole thing. And one of the, and that had actually made me think that when I was watching the movie is what made him think that the Mav at Ares 4 was still upright if they were afraid that the Mav at Ares 3 was going to be knocked over by the wind. Yeah. I, that never occurred to me that the, the wind might not be able to generate the force. Mm-hmm. Right. And that actually ties into the fact that the the whole principle of how how they can lift him off the planet in a basically a convertible, they took the nose off the ship to reduce the weight, is because Mars' atmosphere is so thin. That was the whole reason why that would work. And so they used it in one place for their benefit, but in the other place... Um, they they kind of forgot their own principle because well I should I should blame the author because that's what he how he wrote the book, but it it, it was the one major scientific inaccuracy about the book and the movie was that the, the Mars cannot generate winds that would knock a Mav over yeah. it just can't yeah I'm looking at the NASA uh, planetary information it says the maximum wind speeds recorded by the Viking landers was only sixty miles an hour I really. I I expected it to be a lot more. Yeah, because you know, you, yeah. you it, even before the Martian, uh, I'd heard about dust storms on Mars, but mm-hmm. sixty miles an hour well, is probably enough to blow some dust around. <laughs> well, that's the thing is, is that it's very fine dust, and so it can be picked up and moved um, through the air, mm-hmm. um, but it it's not a strong enough to actually pick up anything big and push it, like and or a Mav. <laughs> like a Mav, yeah, or even a, tele- a communications oh, array probably couldn't have, yeah. So I mean, it, it's just one of those things that they pointed out in Science First Cinema that they said that was the biggest. It was actually the only fail they gave the movie huh. was that windstorm. Um, the other thing that they pointed out, and going back to where we said it was, it felt so much like we were on Mars. One thing that they did not do was properly portray the lighter gravity because Mars has a lighter gravity than Earth. And he would have been a lot more bouncy walking around on on the planet. And they said that a lot more bouncy. granted, yeah. Well, they said that granted he was wearing a very heavy suit, but that that, that was he still would have had a bit of a bounce to his step when he walked, and uh, and that they just didn't bother. That would have been too difficult, I guess, to film, and so they just didn't do it. And they they kind of went, hey, they didn't really portray it very well, but we'll let it go. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, other than that, they really, they really gave the movie um, thumbs up. They said it was very well done scientifically, even right down to the way they were generating um, gravity on the on the Hermes. Mm-hmm. Um, though they did say that somebody had actually calculated because there's one scene where you see the EVA specialist um, going out to to pick up the um, the resupply. And you see him doing an EVA, and you look over to the to the we- to the wheel yeah. on the Hermes, and you see the um, one of the other crew members standing in the window. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they they what they did was somebody actually took they f- like freeze the frame, and they took her height, and they multiplied her across the diameter of the wheel to determine how big the wheel was oh and then to they make took sure how f- it, it's rotating at the right speed to generate right the how fast it was rotating right uh, and so they determined how much gravity it was actually generating based on her height and how fast it was moving and they said it was only generating 0.3 um gravity 
So. Yeah, and there's so, a scene where it shows really her running on a treadmill, <laughs> which clearly mm-hmm. would not have happened. But, you know, point three is actually what the gravity on Mars is. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's interesting. So, yeah, it, it was just a really interesting to go through and, and look at it from a scientific point of view. Yeah. And we'll post it because that video is available on YouTube. So we'll post it in the show yep. notes if you want to look at it in more more uh, detail. It was really fun to watch. Hmm. I, I didn't I didn't watch it, but I will now. <laughs> <laughs> now you had something you wanted to talk about about the agenda. Yeah. Maybe? Yeah. It's, um, you know, so many of the uh, the movies that. Uh, that are you just watching has done uh they have such a distinct presentation of a of a worldview some uh very clearly not christian some mm-hmm. neither christian or non-christian um but they they have like an agenda that they uh mm-hmm. that they intentionally or unintentionally are uh, are pushing for those who aren't looking critically at the movie Right. And I really felt like uh, the focus with The Martian was so much on the classic storytelling of the man versus nature that um, the only agenda that that really seemed to make a significant appearance, in my mind anyway, was that of pluralism, uh, where, you know, God is God to you. And if that god is uh, Krishna or Shiva, then, you know, more power to you. Um, if that god is Christ, okay. And if that god is science, okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say if it pushed anything, it would be a sci- the scientific, you know, almost humanistic point of view. Yeah, but, you know. But it doesn't do it overtly. Yeah. You were right. It's not It's not an in-your-face uh, exclusive to... You know, this is the only way to look at things. It, it um, definitely nowhere near as harsh as Interstellar did. Oh yeah, Interstellar was very heavy. Yeah, that that, that was right. like sledgehammer. <laughs> and I I appreciated the way uh, that it was just so focused on the storytelling and and uh, really seemed to um, let people be people and right. how uh the characters and again this goes back to how the the characters had so much more to them that you never got to see some of the characters had faith and it affected how they acted mhm right um and uh, it's well in the book martinez was uh a catholic much more mm-hmm. much clearly much more clearly catholic right. than he was in the movie Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm glad they kept it in. Well, you know, to me, that was almost stereotypical because he was the the Latino. Yeah. And and that is they typically are Catholic from uh, more just a not necessarily a faith based, but more of a cultural thing. And and so I think that some of it was stereotypical. And each of the characters represented a stereotype. And and I think he stayed true to the stereotype. Um, I don't think he did it in a racist or in a demeaning way, but he did definitely carry through stereotypes on some of the Well, characters. yeah, I think that comes back to what how stereotypes are generated. I mean, right. they're generated through anecdotal evidence and statistical uh, backdrop, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <clears throat> so he made a 
uh, Hispanic military member who is a devout Catholic. Well, mm-hmm. you know that it, it's a stereotype because there probably are a lot of them. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm I'm okay with that as long as it, you know, as long as they don't use that stereotype to make a statement, then I'm fine with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's how that's how they presented it in the in the book and the movie. Well, that's the quick way to generate characters. I mean, yeah, you, you exactly. pull this, you pull the stereotype. And even there was a, a German crew member, and he was very much fit the German stereotype as well. So it, it's it's a quick way to imply, like you said, flesh out people and imply backgrounds without actually giving you full backgrounds for the character. You just you you let the stereotype do its work so yeah. that you in, in the mind of the audience they can flesh that person out as much as they like because he's the stereotype it's yeah. better than than making um a latino character and then making him totally anti everything that latinos stand for in our culture um <laughs> then you're like puzzled by him because uh, latino like, skinhead what yeah it's like how does how does that work and yeah. Uh, it doesn't the background then just falls apart because he, he doesn't he doesn't fit any um easy easy background in your mind and, and so because you, of that it departs it, it makes you depart a little bit from the narrative too because you have right. to you have to suspend some common thought right right yeah. so yeah i think that, that he he basically the characters really did fit um the stereotypes of in order to create that fleshed out feeling to them that you admired so much in the book and the movie. And I, I think that that was very well done and that and authors and, and, um, and movie makers can take note of that and how successful it is to use the stereotype to create a cast of characters that are believable without spending a lot of time on their backgrounds. Yeah. Can you imagine if they, uh, if they tried to put all the characterisms from the book in each of the, uh, just in the crew, <laughs> how much longer the movie would have been yeah yeah so it uh, i was uh like i mentioned i was um pleasantly surprised with the uh with the lack of an uh, overt agenda in uh, mm-hmm. what i felt was the lack of an overt agenda in the martian so i started looking into uh the author andy weir a little bit and <clears throat> read a couple of his short stories and uh there's his by far his most popular short story is uh, a piece of flash fiction called the egg mm-hmm. and uh in it he presents a philosophy that i had never heard of uh called open individualism mm-hmm. and uh i'm i'm not going to go into it here uh but it's a very secular but interesting spiritualistic philosophy and uh it does not appear to be a running theme in you know any of his works he seems as an author he seems to uh he seems to be an equal opportunity you know this is an interesting idea let's want, run with it thing mm-hmm. so i i appreciated that a uh, just in the little uh, amount of research that I was able to do on him, uh, mm-hmm. I do. I am curious as to what his uh, what his publicly held beliefs are. Right. Well, he might just be a relativist, you know. It, it and and that is unfortunately the main guiding thought in our culture today yeah. is is that what you believe is fine for you, and what I believe is fine for me, mm-hmm. and that 
that works to a certain degree, but it it uh, it does away with the concept of absolute truth, which absolute truth is logical. You have to you, you can't logically disprove absolute truth. Yeah. And because any statement that you make to try and disprove it is an absolute statement and you can't have an absolute statement without absolute truth. So it, it's it's a lo- it's a logical fallacy to say that there isn't an absolute truth somewhere. And this uh, this is something that we run into with a lot of different things. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I mean, and it's not something I, that we need to even discuss very much here. But yeah. I think that that's where when when we say that he's not pushing an agenda, that's because he's a relativist. He doesn't have an agenda, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that he's right in not mm-hmm. pushing an agenda. So that's that's a good point. Um, but you know what? I still appreciated that there was no agenda pushed. <laughs> right. <laughs> One of the things that I think is prominent that kind of stuck out to me, you said there was no agenda, obviously, in the movie, but God is actually mentioned. And it, yeah. it's interesting in the context that it's mentioned and how it works out, because um, the first quote, we're actually going to get some quotes in here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this first quote is uh, Mark and, and on Mars, and he's trying to solve a problem that requires fire, and they don't have anything flammable until he goes through uh, uh, his crewmates' belongings that were left behind because they left so quickly. They didn't have time, mm-hmm. time to pack. And he finds um, Martinez's crucifix, which is made out of wood. And so this uh, discussion ensues. By the way, I'm figuring you're going to be fine with this, given my present situation. Now, as we've already mentioned, Martinez is Catholic. Um, that's part of the the stereotype for his character, and it's interesting to me that that the crucifix is um, presented as a representation of Christ, not just um, a representat- representation of a religion, but a representation of Christ. Because Mark addresses the crucifix uh, as if he's talking to Jesus, and. I, I may anger a few Catholics. I'm, we may have a few in our listening audience, but the crucifix in, in a way is mm-hmm. a type of idol. Um, those of us who are not Catholic, um, who are Protestant, we have a reason why we, we show crosses and not crucifixes because in our mentality, um, Christ is no longer on the cross. He died on the cross and then he was resurrected. We don't dwell on the fact that he died on the cross the cross is an emblem of of his conquering of death not yeah. on his death yeah Does actually uh it, my introduction to that entire philosophy was uh when i was first in the army my first permanent duty station was uh, fort polk louisiana and uh mm-hmm. back at that time it was before uh before i met my wife before i had a family and uh i had gone to one or two chapel services because i'd sort of fallen away from the faith and I noticed that the the, the post chapel uh, at the front of the chapel there was a cross, but there was a Christ on the cross, and he was between <laughs> the cross and the wall for the Protestant service. They turned, <laughs> they turned the, cross the cross around. around. So I asked the chaplain <laughs> about that, and he explained exactly what you just explained. It's that. Uh, Protestants generally mm-hmm. believe that the cross should be empty, but Catholics uh, mm-hmm. generally portray it as Christ on the cross making the sacrifice. And that's always right. stuck with me, the difference between those two views. Um, it all comes down mm-hmm. to uh, the sacrifice and 
the the effect of that sacrifice, but for for Protestants, the cross is empty because Christ is resurrected. And uh, right. it's I suspect that uh, for evangelicals like myself, um, that really is the bigger deal, so to speak. Even though they're all, you mm-hmm. know, galactically infinitely big deals. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because uh, we're not to have any mm-hmm. graven images, and that's presented over and over again in the Old Testament that you're not supposed to worship an image. And there's some people, even in the evangelical Protestant side of things, that take this a little too far, um, where they won't even show uh, illustrations yep. representing Christ because that's a graven image. Um, but at the same time, I think that it can definitely be a problem. And I and I am not saying Catholics yeah. are not Christians. There are some Catholics uh, that are. There are a Christians. lot of Protestants who aren't Christians. So right, um, but there it's very easy in the Catholic doctrine to pray to a graven image yep. instead of to God because it is so prominent. It's like it's not even just it's not even just Christ on the cross and the crucifix. It's it's the saints. And it's a lot of other things, and and they portray them in statues in their churches, and people go in and leave sacrifices at their feet, and and it's a mixing of paganism into the church that I think yeah, uh, is dangerous. It, the more traditional the uh, the faith gets, uh, you mentioned Catholics, mm-hmm. and uh, I I think I've mentioned before I uh, have a good friend in in Florida who is Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox, and they have the whole. Mm-hmm iconism thing which uh mm-hmm. has always bugged me on on uh on that same level for that same reason right right and i i just think it's one of those things you have to be aware of when you have a faith and i'm speaking if, if we do have catholics in our audience i speak to you directly beware that you are praying to god not praying to a statue because those statues, those crucifixes, they do, they are not representative of God. And God has specifically told us in the 10 commandments that we are not to worship graven images. And, and that puts an object in the place of God and God doesn't want you to have an object in place of him. And I think that that's why so many of the religious uh, relics of the eras um, of the Old Testament are not to be found. I think God purposely hid them because he didn't want people worshiping them instead of him, like the Ark of the Covenant. And you think that's Noah's why the Ark. Ark of the Covenant is still in that warehouse somewhere outside of D.C.? <laughs> uh, yeah. You mean it isn't? <laughs> I, I, do, I would like to say specifically that um, whether or not you – subscribe to praying to the saints or not praying to the saints that's not really it is not necessarily a salvation issue and Mm -hmm. uh i i don't want to give people the impression that we're saying you know if you pray to if you say hail mary's you know then you're not a christian because you that's not what makes you a christian Uh, what makes you a christian is uh you know comes down to uh understanding your need for salvation for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and giving your life over to him, accepting the Holy Spirit and, you know, wanting to do good. And uh, believe me, for as much as we want to do good, uh, we fail a lot. Well, uh, the other point that I wanted to make with bringing that quote up, and, and it's going to follow with the quote that I'm going to play here in a minute, is the fact that 
that Watney is praying, basically praying to Christ when he's when he's looking at the crucifix because he says, you know, he's addressing Christ at this point. And I'm wondering, you know, it's it's very easy for someone to say, well, he prayed, you know, <laughs> was that his really? intent? Because was that his intent or was he just just addressing the fact that he knew what the crucifix mm-hmm. represented? I, I certainly did not get the impression that it was prayer seeking. <laughs> prayer seeking change or something (laughs) yeah yeah so uh, this next quote that i'm going to play uh is is slightly it it appears in both the book and the movie which actually the previous one did as well um but this it's slightly different in the book you believe in god vincent yeah yeah my father was a hindu my mother's a baptist so yeah i believe in salvation Take all the hell we can get. Okay, so in the book, this was rendered slightly different, and this really caught my. I think I caught this, and you didn't because I, I, in our initial conversation about it, you didn't realize there was a difference here. In the book, uh, and this is read from the book. Do you believe in God, Venkat? Mitch asked. Sure, lots of them. Venkat said, "I'm Hindu. Ask them all for help with this launch. We'll do." Okay, this. This quote, in both ways that it's rendered, comes at a time where they are launching a supply to Mark on Mars so that he can survive uh, over a year for them to come and get him. He needs food. He's going to run out of food. And that launch fails. <laughs> I wonder if the fact that it failed was an intentional point back. Play back. Yeah. yeah, to the fact that they don't really know who they're praying to. <laughs> Um, but the, it's interesting to me that they changed it in the movie that instead of making him Hindu with lots of gods, um, they make him a little bit more uh, yeah. relativist in that his that he's he's basically a little bit a schizophrenic in his faith <laughs> because he he's got his father who's a Hindu and his mother's a Baptist and how that occurred I have no clue yep. because we're not supposed to be unequally yoked with a, with unbelievers so either his mother wasn't really a Baptist she was just going through maybe emotions. culturally Baptist I think you know the like, culturally it, Baptist you're right? always Jewish if you're born into a Jewish family even if you're not a practicing <laughs> Jew. Right, right. So that might be more that it was a cultural thing. But I think that they kind of did that in the movie more to just make it a little bit less Hinduish. Yeah. I think they were afraid that if they left it the way it was in the book where he was just praying to a lot of gods because he's Hindu, um, that it wouldn't have had the same connection with a Western audience. Mm-hmm. And I think they were trying to make that connection with a Western audience. And so they made his mother a Baptist so that he could say he yeah. And still believes in several gods, unfortunately. Um, he just put them all together in a basket. Let's just pray to all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully one of them's listening. They presented him as being, um, in both instances, really Hindu because he's adding all of the gods together. So he's praying to several for the, the help of this launch, and the launch fails. And one of the thoughts I kind of thought of is, does a plea to God imply that you will get help um, even if you're not really believing in that God. And that, and that kind of even goes back to Watney, um, Mark Watney talking to the crucifix. It's like, if he's not really a believer, would his prayers be answered? And I think based on what I've read in scripture is the only prayer of an unbeliever that is heard by God is the one where asking for forgiveness. 
that's the only prayer that he's interested in hearing from an unbeliever is the the prayer that makes them a believer. Yeah, I think in, is interested in hearing is the important part. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously yeah. we believe in a a omniscient well, he knows. sovereign well, God. Yeah, he so. hears it, but yeah, he hears yeah. it. He just chooses not to listen. Um, I don't think that he would respond to any prayer except for uh, one of asking for forgiveness and, and accepting uh, the at, free gift of salvation. At the same time, though, we have to remember that God uses unbelievers and e- even even pe- evil people uh, all mm-hmm. the time in his in his uh, in you know the completion of his will. Um, that look at Babylon, look at Egypt mm-hmm. uh, in the Old Testament. It, both of them. Uh, well, definitely, they can be instruments of his wrath. And, and look judgment. at the Book of Judges. Oh yeah, um, but I, I think but they're not asking to be um, right. He's just he's making use of them. Um, he can definitely use unbelievers, but in this instance, it's a direct prayer, just throwing a prayer out to whatever gods might be listening. And I don't think that any there for one thing, there is only one God. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, uh, in Isaiah forty three ten, it says, "You are my witnesses." This is the Lord's declaration, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. No God was formed before me, and there will be none after me. Mm-hmm. So this is God Himself saying, "There are no other gods. I'm it." Yep. And so if you're if you're out there just throwing prayers to the wind, hoping that some God is going to hear you, God isn't going to listen to that because you're you're not praying to Him. Yeah. It- a belief in God it, it is uh, clearly not enough either, because it, mm-hmm. uh, it, like uh, James says in James two nineteen, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and and they shudder. Uh, clearly, mm-hmm. though, the demons aren't saved. Um, right. So right. <laughs> it, it's not just the belief in God, but it is, uh, um, you know, the understanding A surrender of surrender to yeah, God of our need mm-hmm. for God. Yeah, and and God I think is mostly misrepresented in this movie. I don't it, despite the fact there is no agenda to to make God look bad, I think that he's definitely misrepresented and you have to take that into account when you see these these little references that come up, the fact that he has been misrepresented. Yeah. And and as we mentioned before talking about the language his name is even taken in vain. Uh, a few times. <laughs> Yeah, I I hadn't thought of. Uh, I guess the few times that uh, that God is mentioned as God, mm-hmm. and not you know His name being taken in vain, uh, it's it is in reference to you know a character's personal belief, mm-hmm. and uh, it certainly doesn't have any theology to it. But you know what? It got us talking about it. So well, we wouldn't expect it in a movie like right. this. Yeah, and and that's the point of Are You Just Watching is to help you remember this when you're watching a movie that um, it's easy to go. Well, they mention God. They mention praying. They show a character praying. You know, <laughs> eat, pray, love. Yeah. <laughs> so we just wanted to point out that just because it's mentioned doesn't mean it's it's in a good context. Yeah. Yeah. You 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 have to uh, you have to remember that God tells us about himself through his love letter to us mm-hmm. and uh, uh go there for your source of wisdom on god yeah. not not the martian <laughs> the sheer volume of um uh, particularly in this movie the t- the number of times that uh, god's name is taken in vain really does uh speak to um 
how, how desensitized we are as a society now to the whole idea of swearing oaths uh, and using God's name in vain in particular. Uh, it's, it is, it, I dare say, commonplace, and it really shouldn't be um, mm-hmm. as, uh, uh, you know, we, we all tie everything back to our own personal experiences. And as a vet, um, uh, I tie a lot back to uh, when I and the uh, people who enlisted with me, we rose our hands mm-hmm. and uh, we swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. And I cannot help but to think that when uh, God gave us the prohibition against making oaths in his name, that he was thinking specifically of the importance of oaths in general to people and uh, what would happen to civilization if oaths became useless. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Exactly. That's Matthew 7, I think, yep. or 6. It, it, it's important that not only do we remember the importance of uh, our word as uh, as citizens and as Christians, but we remember the importance of God and the power of his name. Um uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2 say, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is to better than to offer sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. It's important that uh, we understand you know how important those words are and and when we get so used to not only taking god's name in vain but hearing god's name in vain uh i think mm-hmm. it desensitizes us uh as a society um and it takes away from our fear uh our righteous uh holy fear of god yeah it's it's important that we always hold that in our mind that God doesn't want us uh, using His name in a vain way. And when we speak it, he, it's like when you speak somebody's name in a in a crowded room, they always turn to look. Mm-hmm. You know, if I if I hear my name spoken um, in a room full of people, I'm going to look around and see if somebody's actually called me. And they might be talking to someone else, especially I would think with with Tim, that's probably a fairly common name. And so yeah. you probably hear it a lot. I think God is the same way. He's listening all the time. And so if people are saying his name all the time and they're not actually talking to him, uh, I'm sure that gets annoying. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, giving giving God a little bit of a personification there. I mean, you would be annoyed if somebody's always always um, saying your name and not really talking to you. So just remember that. <laughs> yeah, we need to. Well, we need to get back to a belief in God as uh, as a whole in society. Mm-hmm. Um, but we really need to um, get back to putting the fear, uh, the fear of God in people. Um, mm-hmm. It it just isn't there. It's a anymore. dreadful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know what? It's people just don't see it anymore. Now, it was interesting that you you brought up in our notes um, about 
the miracle statements. And let's play that quote really quick. And if by some miracle none of that happens, eventually I'm going to run out of food. Now, I thought it was very interesting, the conclusion that you pulled from that about the, the idea of a miracle really losing a connection with God. Yeah. And um, we, I was actually in my, uh, we're recording this on a Sunday and I teach a, a young late, young lady's Sunday school class. And we were dealing with the um, account in Acts about uh, Peter raising Tabitha from the dead. Mm. And, and how when he prayed, one of the, the curriculum really brought out the fact that he knelt and he prayed before God. And then he reached out his hand and said, rise Tabitha. It was with this innate trust and belief that um, God was going to raise Tabitha from the dead. He didn't doubt it for a second. As soon as he looked up from his prayer, he had his hand out for her to, to help her out of bed. Mm-hmm. And that that is a miracle that we don't see happening anymore. And I even asked the girls, I was like, do have we lost our expectation of what a miracle actually is? And I was kind of had this this comment that you had made fresh on my mind. It's like if we really had enough faith to believe in miracles, would we would they become so um, almost the vernacular for the impossible, something that won't happen? Yeah, it's it's the the word itself has almost been hijacked. Right. Um, it's uh, it's I really I, I looked up the origin of miracle and. Uh, you know, it comes back to a wonder or a marvel from the Latin um, mm-hmm. uh, to to wonder or marvel at, and uh, the miracles that uh, I I would say that most of Americans are familiar with are miracles from the Bible, mm-hmm. um, but now we when it shows up in just you know regular conversation, it, uh, it I think of that famous uh famous or infamous character from uh the princess bride miracle max um mm-hmm. uh, uh, have fun storming the Free castle yeah yeah <laughs> you think it would hurt it'll take a miracle um the miracles really have been uh take in my mind they've lost their connection to god and and uh i would like to see them see them come back um well, I think that part of that is that we've lost our faith in them. Mm-hmm. It's like we, we, we've quit looking for them. And when we pray, we don't pray with the expectation that God is going to work a miracle. And and even it, it, Jesus said, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could tell a mountain to move and it would move. And it it makes you wonder how much faith modern Christianity really has yeah. that that we don't we don't expect miracles anymore. And so we don't pray for them. And Jesus himself told us if if we really believed that it would happen and it's in God's will, it'll happen. And we just we don't I don't think we have we we don't pray with that expectation anymore. Not like Peter did. I, I look forward to a time when uh, they will once been once again be commonplace. Mm hmm. Well, I think we've we've probably won, run way over time yep. on this first part episode. And so we're going to have to um, close this out really quick. So we've already mentioned that you can comment on our show notes. Um, we do want you to join us on Facebook. Um, definitely. Uh, we always post when a lot more stuff on Facebook. Uh, leave, leave us a voicemail at 903-231-2221. And you can also email us at feedback and com. And did you know what, Tim? We got a new review on iTunes, and it was Yay! it was wonderful to actually have somebody um, 
just comment on how well we are doing. And so thank you so much. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we beg you, please go and, and review us on iTunes. If you review us on iTunes, then that makes that prompts us up in popularity. We become more visible. And so we want obviously to add to our listener base. So we would really appreciate positive reviews on iTunes. So thank you for the positive review and keep them coming, please. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, Check back in in a couple weeks. We should have the next episode out and finish our discussion on The Martian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. Thanks for listening. And don't just watch. Are You Just Watching is a proud member of the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. Our opening vocal talent was thanks to Mariah. The theme song is used courtesy of Answers in Genesis. For more great podcasts like this one, visit the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. That's noodle.mx. Noodle.